I want you to consider, is there anything right now that you're counting down to? Are you counting the days until a vacation? Are you counting down the days until, um, I don't know, the, the, some sort of promotion that you're expected to get or something like that? And we might count down to something for two different reasons. One, it might be something to relieve us from a difficult situation, like I'm just counting down the days so I've done that vacation because then I can be done with work for a while. Or we might also count down to something that uh, we're just looking forward to. So you could be looking forward to the vacation too, or it might just be like, oh, I'm, you know, life's fine, but I'm really looking forward to this thing happening, that I'm going to receive this thing, or I'm going to do this thing. And sometimes Katie and I, if we're honest, we're counting down the hours until the kids go to bed, because then we get a little moment of, okay, you know, just two more hours, two more hours, like you're kind of crazy today. Laurel's saying, yep, yep. <laughs> so we count down the hours until, okay, we get a little break now, and we get to just do something with us. Um, Hudson has been counting down the days until Easter. It's, I don't, you know, it's like almost as exciting as his birthday at Christmas because he got, he knew he was getting this little eagle stuffed animal. He helped pick it out. He was really into eagles, and it's like that's going to be in your Easter basket. So it's like, is it Easter today? And you know, every day counting down. So looking forward to something he's excited about. The one counting down until kids go to bed. It's like, okay, I'm gonna be relieved, kind of off duty for a little bit. And so, uh, but Hudson counting down to Easter is like, okay, I'm going to get this thing I'm really excited about. And there's a lot of power in having something to look forward to. Um, I have, there's a mentor in my life who says, you know, I can, I can do just about anything for a time, knowing that it will end. Kind of like we can do a hard thing knowing this is going to end. We're going to have relief at some point. Or we can uh, look, having something to look forward to maybe gets us uh, through things that seem a little more mundane or boring. Like, man, I'm just kind of waking up and going to my job. But I know... This thing is coming uh, in the future. And we have, when you have something to look forward to, how does that change how you experience today, what you're doing today? And maybe you think, you know, okay, today is cold or whatever, windy. You're like, but I just keep thinking about my toes sitting in that sand and, you know, soaking up the warm sun. You're like, that's getting you through today, the gloominess of what might be happening. Uh, we might think when that happens, when that day finally comes, it's going to make everything better. We might look forward to vacations or the weekend or some sort of event or just something on our calendar, and it can get us through. Today might be tough, but that thing we're looking forward to can kind of almost like pulls us along, like I'm just going to get to that thing. And we're in this series in First Peter we started last weekend, and the name of the series is called Different, um, because this is uh, what these followers of Jesus in the first century, living 30 years after Jesus' death, and resurrection, they're struggling with, we have different beliefs than all the people around us. Uh, we have a different lifestyle than all the people around us. And that made them really stick out. And people kind of, there's this pressure to fit in. Like, I'm living this different way. People don't really like that. They're criticizing it. They're you know, talking bad about me. Um, what am I going to do? And Peter, he writes to these believers as someone who's actually a really good mentor for how to get through uh, the pressure that you're feeling to fit in. That I, If I just blended in, if I could just fit in, life would be so much easier. Because um, this Friday was Good Friday, which is when Jesus died. But that Thursday night before, Jesus struggled with that issue of like, uh, he not necessarily fit in, but he didn't want to be pointed out as different. People kept asking, aren't you a follower of Jesus too? Aren't you one of his people that came with him from Galilee? I can tell your accent. He said, no, 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 I don't know him. And so he wanted to not be in the spotlight as a follower of Jesus. And so in a way, he was trying to fit in. And First Peter, written 30 years later um, to these uh, churches that are scattered around present-day uh, Turkey, um, 
Peter writes these, and he's trying to help them uh, with this pressure to fit in. And he's a good mentor for it because he gets it. He knew what that pressure felt like, that I'm not going to say I'm with Jesus because I don't, I'm scared of the consequences of that. So he knows the pressure, what it feels like. He knows what it's like to fail. Um, and even more uh, important, he knows what, how Jesus treated him after he did fail, that Jesus didn't say, okay, you're out, you, know, you had your chance, and you blew it, but he says, he doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't say, Peter, you denied me. We need to talk about that. He just gives him three times, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you love me? He, you deny me three times. I'm going to give you a chance to reaffirm uh, your commitment to me. And so he, Peter knows how hard it is. He knows what it's like to fail, and he knows how Jesus is uh, when we uh, have moments where we're like, Jesus, this isn't worth it. I don't want to pay the cost that it's going to cost me. And so... Uh, Peter knows that Jesus is more faithful to us than we ever will be to him. And many, there's a pastor named Tony Evans who I've heard him say that, and I've mentioned this before several, uh, quite a few sermons ago, but this year, is that uh, Christians have lost home field advantage in the United States. That we are no longer the home team, we're the visiting away team. If you think about what it means to lose home field advantage, to be the visiting away team, the crowd is against you, uh, you're not in a city where you know you have posters for you know you don't have you don't see a whole lot of banners hanging around with Packers symbols down here in Chicago. Um, but so if you're a Packer fan here, like Katie and I are, uh, it's like okay, we this isn't our home. This isn't where uh, we grew up. People aren't rooting for our team. And the same way for Christians is that the United States uh, is less and less rooting for Team Jesus. Less and less saying yes, we want Christian values, we want Christian ethics, we want Christian priorities in our government and in our nation. And almost everything about biblical Christianity is offensive to our culture. Our beliefs about God, our beliefs about people, our beliefs about salvation, our ethics and morality, where our identity comes from, almost all of that is countercultural. Our culture does not like those things. And so it can be a struggle to be different, to say, you know what, yeah, I believe this book written thousands of years ago is true. And I believe the things it says. This stuff really happened. Like, just saying that makes you a completely oddball in our culture to say, I believe this book is true and everything it says is true. That's, you know, just saying that is enough. And so we may struggle to be different. Or perhaps you are struggling with how different Christianity is, thinking this is just different than what um, I tend to believe or people around me believe. It's just so different. I'm struggling to believe it for myself. Like, that, I know that what that would take for me to hold on to these beliefs and Peter has the same answer for both of us, people that are trying to figure out if Christianity is real or people that are struggling to fit with that pressure to fit in. He's the same answer for both. It's Jesus' resurrection. It's what, changed his, it's what changed Peter's life. It's what we're celebrating today. It's what changes our lives. It just changed everything for him. And the only reason we care about Jesus' death is because he didn't stay dead. And so that is what we're talking about today. And this... This is what we're looking at as the opening part of Peter's letter to these Christians 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection. And we'll come back to the first two verses, but we're going to start in verse 3. So it's page 1014 if you want that up. We'll come back to his greeting at the end. So it's 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 3. And verses 3 through 5, really, he starts with the future. He doesn't start with the present. He goes to the future, and he starts praising God. Blessed be the God, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's this big praise thing. And what's he praising God for? It says, according to his great mercy. And so we're being told that what God has done isn't according to our goodness 
or our ability to impress him, our ability to prove we're good enough. What he has done is according to his great mercy. What has happened? Peter says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. And each of us was born into a family. And each family has both baggage and blessings that come with it. You come into a family and it's like, okay, you inherit uh, the things that are not so great about that family, but you also inherit the things that are good about that family. There's uh, privileges and responsibilities when you're born into a family. So Peter's saying, you were, yes, you were born, but now you've been born again, once again. It's like a whole new start. You're part of a whole new family now. You've entered into a new family. You were, uh, you were born into an earthly family, but you've, not God, you've been born into God's family. And he says, then he describes what comes with that, what comes with being born into God's family. He says, you, uh, God has caused us to be born again to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so the first thing, you've been born again to a living hope uh, through the resurrection of Jesus. On Easter Sunday, the first one, uh, God's new world, God's new kingdom sprouted amidst this old, broken world. But this world is not as it should be. But God uh, has sprouted now a new world through Jesus' resurrection within this old world. So you've been born into this living hope. Jesus is alive. Your hope is not dead. It's in a living Lord and Savior who can actually do something on your behalf because he's not dead anymore. But he also calls it, these are kind of three synonyms. He says you've been born to a living hope. In verse 4 he says you've been born again to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. And those three words uh, can give us great comfort, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Even if you're like, I don't exactly know how I define those, you get the point that this is something that cannot be touched, it cannot be destroyed, it cannot be taken away from you. And if you go back into the Old Testament, God would talk about Israel's inheritance as uh, the land of Israel that they were uh, going to inherit. And so he said to them, uh, we... This is your, uh, your inheritance is going to be that you're going to get this land that I've prepared for you. I promised it to your forefathers, and I'm going to give it to uh, your, you in the, in the future. And so this land that they're going to get is uh, something that they're looking forward to God giving them. But the issue is, you guys, we have, if you'd like to have your kids go in kids' ministry, they can. So it would be right through there in the other room. But they can stay in here if, if you'd like as well. So, welcome. No, you're fine. So there's this uh, inheritance that the people of Israel are going to get. But the issue is, they take the land, uh, and they're there, and first they defile it by their disobedience, by their not following God. But then other nations come in, and they take the land from Israel. This is their inheritance, but God, because of their disobedience, they turn away from God. God says, it's a privilege for you to have this land. And so he says, other nations are going to come and take it from you. And, so, and at this current time, while Peter's writing, that land is taken over by the Roman Empire. And so it's like we have this inheritance God gave us, but look, it's defiled. It's fading. Like we don't, we don't even own it anymore. It's, it's not imperishable. It's been taken from us. But Peter is saying, now this is a totally new inheritance. This inheritance that you've been given can't be taken from you, can't be defiled. It won't fade. It's imperishable. God has given it to you. And then he also, then in verse he says it's kept in heaven for you. It's an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. He says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, it's kept in heaven for you. God is keeping it. And then he goes on and gives another synonym. So we have a living hope and inheritance. 
And then he says uh, in verse 5, It's kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So you've been born again into a living hope, into an inheritance, into a salvation. And perhaps you've uh, heard this before, but our salvation actually has three tenses, past, present, future. God has saved us from the penalty of sin. God is saving us from the power of sin. And God will save us from the presence of sin. And so Peter here is looking to that forward that you know, one day you're going to be part of this living hope, this inheritance, this salvation, where what a sin has done to you in this world is going to be washed away. It's going to be gone. You're going to be saved from its presence. And he says, God is keeping that for you. And then in verse 5 he says, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. So it's not only that God is keeping the, the inheritance for you, but he's keeping you for it that you're being guarded by faith, by God's power. We enter into God's protected service through faith. You might think of it as a God's witness protection program, that the people who want to witness to who Jesus is, they are now kept by God. They're in his witness protection program. And so that's all future, verses, uh, one, uh, verses 3 through 5 in 1 Peter 1. And then he moves on to the present. He comes back to the present in verses 6 through 9, 1 Peter Chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. And so he's first he's saying, I want you to look way out there. Look beyond where you can even see. That's the hope you're born into. And then he steps back and says, okay, now let's talk about your current reality. Like, what is going on for you right now? And what he says is that they've been grieved by various trials. And this isn't necessarily like, um, you know, it's a type of suffering, but not like I had a hard day or like I... I'm sick or I have you know, some sort of illness. That's not even talking about here. He's talking about a certain kind of trial, a certain kind of suffering. And it's the, the trials of uh, them experiencing hostility and harassment because they're followers of Jesus. They're experiencing hostility and harassment because they're different than other people. But he says, for a little while, he says in verse uh, 6, in this you rejoice, in, in that salvation, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. A little while. So he emphasizes that this is temporary. And we could go to other verses in the New Testament, first, uh, such as Romans 8.18, where the Apostle Paul says, you know, what, what is coming to us is incomparable uh, to what is happening now. You might be experiencing suffering now for your faith in Christ or in any other way, but it is beyond comparing it to what you're going to get in the future. And so he called, Apostle Paul calls it temporary. This is light and temporary affliction compared to what you're going to get in the future. And we, he also says that it's purposeful. It's for a little while, and it's purposeful. He says in verse 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes those tested by fire, and be found to result in praise and glory and honor, the revelation of Jesus Christ. So our trials we might experience now, our trials because we're followers of Jesus, are not meaningless. And, uh, so he talks about gold, and there's various ways to purify gold, but the oldest way is in a crucible. Put the gold in, heat it up, and then the impurities um, come out of it, and so you can get those impurities out, and then you're having gold that is uh, pure and refined. There's no impurities in it. And this, biblical, this is a biblical image that's used throughout the Bible, that God uses the things in our life um, to purify us, to bring out the impurities um, in our faith, things that, you know, I was holding on to that, or I was holding on to this, I was hoping in that, and God will use trials to take those impurities away so that our faith is more purely 
uh, focused on him. And we discover even in 1 Peter that there's two goals, two competing goals in our trials. Satan has a goal. God has a goal. In 1 Peter 5.8, we're told that Satan is roaming around like a prowling lion looking for people to devour. And Satan's goal in our trials is that we would renounce our faith. That we'd say, that's it. I've had it. This isn't worth it. I'm done. Um, so Satan's goal is that we renounce our faith. God's goal is to refine our faith. All the impurities of our faith he wants to remove so what we have left is something worthy of praise and glory and honor when we stand before Jesus. And so what Satan t- intends for evil, evil, God intends for good. Satan tempts, but God tests, and tests bring out uh, more pure faith. And it's important to notice in verse 5 we saw God's protection is over us who trust in him. But notice for Peter, it's not protection from trials, there still will be difficult things in our life. It's not protection from trials, but it's protection for receiving our inheritance. You are protected that you would make it to the end by faith uh, and stand before Jesus. And so we did future, verses 3 through 5, present, verses 6 through 9, and then past, verses 10 through uh, 12. And here, Peter goes back into the Old Testament. It's kind of like, okay, we look to the future. This is what's coming to you. Let's, I want you to set your eye on that. Now let's come back to the present. How will this change your present? Then he says, oh, and by the way, this isn't like a new thing we've made up. If you go back and read the Old Testament, that's, they don't even have a New Testament at Peter's time. There's no book bound together called the New Testament. They have the Old Testament. He's saying, by the way, this isn't just us talking about this. The book that we have, that our people have, it talked about it. He says, this, this is the fulfillment of Old Testament promises and prophecies, and now it's being announced to you by those who have preached the good news by the Spirit. He says, the Old Testament, the Spirit revealed to the prophets that the Messiah is going to come, the King's going to come, He's going to rescue you, there's going to be suffering, there's going to be glory. And now today, you're hearing about this from the ones Jesus sent out to preach to you by the Holy, power of the Holy Spirit. And so, He's saying, in a sense, listen, it may feel like this isn't a very great time to be alive. It may feel like this isn't a gift at all to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're wondering if it's all worth it. But let me tell you, people in the past wanted so badly to be where you are right now. They, they realized that they were serving you and not themselves. They're talking about something they're never going to get to experience. And then he says the angels are on the edge of their seat watching what God is doing right now. You are privileged to be in the time of fulfillment that others longed for, waited for, and prayed for, and who died without ever seeing it. And so though it's hard, you're living in a privileged time. You may think this really stinks, but the prophets and angel, angels look at you and consider you blessed. And Peter says, the prophets talked about the suffering and then the glories of the Messiah. And Peter was not reading his Old Testament this way before, because if you remember, we talked about last week, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die and then be resurrected, suffering and glory. And Peter says, uh, Jesus, I don't think you got that story right. Uh, you're, that's not going to happen to you. Surely it won't happen to you. You're the Messiah. You're the Christ. You're the King. You're going to take out all these bad guys. You're not going to be killed by them. And Jesus says, you're thinking on the things of man, not on the things of God. And so Peter wasn't reading it this way before. And But Peter has now learned, yes, it's suffering, then glory. And it's the path that Peter's audience is on. They're suffering for their faithfulness to Jesus, for their faithfulness to God. And Peter wants to say, but look, Jesus walked this path too. And we know where he ended, resurrection, glory. And you're walking that same path that he walked. 
and you can know where it's going to end. You're grieved by various trials, but you're heading toward glory. And the path to glory isn't to go around suffering, but through it. That's what Jesus, their king, had to do. So unlike his readers, Peter saw Jesus. He was with them during the betrayal, during the rest, during the, the beatings, being uh, put on, getting examined, and then crucified. And he saw Jesus die and be buried. And so Jesus' death and burial for Peter was the death and burial of Peter's hope. I'm hoping in this guy to lead our nation to salvation, to bring our inheritance back to us by kicking out the Romans. In Luke chapter 24, Jesus, there's a couple, two of Jesus' disciples. This is before they know he's resurrected. They're walking on the road to a, uh, to a town called Emmaus. And Jesus comes up and asks, what, what are you two talking about? And they don't recognize that it's Jesus back from the dead. And they respond, uh, we're talking about what's happened. And Jesus asks, what has happened? And they, they kind of say to him, like, are you the only person who doesn't know what's been going down lately? You know, what? And so Jesus is like, you know, what's happened? And they respond, they say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, uh, and our, how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, is now the third day since these things have happened. They said, we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we had hoped he would be the one to save us, that he would rescue us from our enemies. But he was killed. He's dead and buried. So how in the world could he be, put our hope in him now? How, how could he redeem us now? Now what? Now what do we do? We thought he was our hope. Without the resurrection, we would not be reading this letter that First Peter wrote. The people who became Jesus' disciples, I mean, they would have gone back to their day jobs. What do you do? The guy you're following, that you're giving your life to, come, you know, learn from me, I'll make you fishers of men. And they're thinking, like, this is going to be great. He's going to redeem Israel. He's going to save Israel. He's going to boot off the Romans. And it's going to be great. But then, what happens? Our leader's dead. So the party's over, right? I just hope they never recognize that I was one of his followers. And so go, go back to your day jobs. And that's what Peter does. He goes back to fishing. He returned to his day job. And Peter thought Jesus' death was the end of the story. Good Friday was the end. Because how can a dead king save us? How can a dead Messiah rescue and redeem us? If Jesus is dead, then hope is also dead. But then he's raised from the dead. And these people that went back to their day jobs, their lives are changed when they see him alive again. It's like, well, we always kind of ignored that bit. Peter, Jesus said, I'm going to suffer and die and be raised from the dead. And I don't know what they thought when he said, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Maybe that was like a metaphor. Maybe that's, like, you know, they just ignored the thought. Like, yeah, that's kind of weird stuff. Sure, we're all going to be raised from the dead, Jesus, at the resurrection of the righteous. And yeah, you're righteous, so you're going to be raised from the dead someday. But uh, it's not going to be three days after you die. That's not how it works. And Peter thought that was the end of the story. But then Jesus changed everything. Jesus' death was no longer a defeat, but a victory. Instead of how can a dead Messiah save us, it's now... The way that the Messiah, the way the King saves us, rescues us, and redeems us is by dying for us. Because Jesus didn't come to de- he didn't come to defeat the Romans. He came to defeat sin and Satan and death, our much worse enemies. And Jesus saves by dying in our place. He dealt with our sin on the cross, so now we can be done with it. You can think of that. Every time you're feeling condemned or weighed down by sin, I'm just not good enough to say, Jesus dealt with it, so I need to be done with it. And both in your behavior and in your feelings, in your conscience, of like, I'm righteous before God. And Peter and Jesus' other 
followers discovered that it wasn't, if Jesus dies, we have no hope. They discovered, unless Jesus dies, we have no hope. And they, ha- they learned, what does it actually look like for this Messiah to save us, to be our king who can rescue us? And so Peter starts with the resurrection in this letter because it meant everything to him. He wouldn't be an apostle of Jesus Christ if Jesus was still dead. He wouldn't have written this letter if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. And the fact is, it's extremely unlikely that any of us would know the name Jesus of Nazareth if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. I mean, if you're like into Jewish studies and you're studying the history of what, you know, who are some of the Jewish people that were prominent, you know, maybe you would have heard of Jesus. Okay, he was this teacher and he kind of was a bit crazy because he thought he was the Messiah, kind of almost talking like he's God. And then he died and poof, his moment went away. And we're like, okay, moving on to the next Jewish person I'm going to read about as I learn about uh, history of Judaism. And so it's very unlikely that we would be even know the name Jesus of Nazareth if he wasn't raised from the dead. Why would we wear crosses around our necks? It, it's, just, it's an odd behavior that we do. Why would we put up, we don't have one here, but why would we put up a cross in a sanctuary? Why would we wear a crosses on t-shirts? Why would we do any of this? Why would we have this be a symbol? Because crosses were uh, what the Roman Empire used to get people back in line. It's, if you're messing around with the Roman Empire, if you're talking bad about Caesar, the king, like, okay, fine. We'll crucify you. If you think you're so, you know, such a big deal, we'll hang you up on this and everybody can walk by and watch you and think, that's what happens when you mess with Rome. And so I don't want to do that. And now we take that thing that Rome used for torture and execution and we wear it around our necks. We put it on our t-shirts. And the only reason we do that is because it has become the symbol of hope for Christianity. It's where Jesus paid for all of our sins. All of our times we've said no to God. All of our times we've failed to love God above all else and to love other people as ourselves. That's what Jesus was doing on the cross. It's, and the reason we care about the cross is because it wasn't the end of the story. It's the symbol of God's surprising way of bringing salvation to us. It's God's surprising demonstration of his great love for us. The cross reminds us of the story we're living in. It reminds us that we don't serve a God who said, here's what you need to do, here's the ladder, here's the mountain, climb up it. No, we save a God that said, I'm going to come down the ladder, down the mountain, down into the grave to pull you out of it, and I'm going to carry you back up there. It's not, get your act together so you can come to me, get your act together so that I can love you or care about you or like you, but it's like, I'm going to come down and get you so you know how much I love you already, and I'm going to bring you back up with me. I'm going to come down into your suffering and I'm going to bring you back up into glory. And that's the God we serve. Not a climb the ladder to me, but he came down the ladder for us. And Jesus is the beginning, middle, and end of the story. In the past, his coming was foretold. In, his pre- in the present, we love and trust him. In the future, where we look forward to a living hope and inheritance, a salvation made possible by him. I don't know how you guys deal with uh, when you're watching a TV show and uh, something bad happens to characters in it, or Maybe there's two characters where they're, I don't know, flirting or something, and you're like, are they going to get together? And I just kind of, you know, ride my way through that tension, ride my way through that drama. Um, but many times, Katie can't really take it. And I asked her if I could share this. She said, okay. Um, we're watching a TV show, and something bad happens to one of the main characters. She wants to know, is this going to get resolved? What's going to happen in the end? And so, for instance, in this one show we're watching, one of the main characters is in prison. He's been, like, framed for something. And it's, like, one of the beloved characters of the show. And so she's went and looked up on the internet. Does he ever get out of prison? You know, does this resolve? And she's just like, oh, 
back and you can watch it now. And she's just sitting over there knowing what happens, going through the drama. And I'm like, don't tell me because I want to you know, live through it. And so she wants that tension resolved. She doesn't want to live in the drama and tension, wondering, is it all going to be okay? She wants to know, well, does it work out in the end? And Peter points us to the future in these first verses. He says, the end is already written. You can already know the end of your story. He reminds us of where our story ends. And he reads kind of like the last chapter of the book. Let me, let me just take a moment, uh, before even addressing what's going on, let me come to the last chapter, and let me read that chapter, last chapter of a book. And by the way, this chapter has unending pages. It's not a brief chapter, it's unending. Let me read you that chapter. He takes us there, and then he comes back to the present, and he says, the chapter you're in right now is very brief compared to that one. And the badness you're experiencing now can't compare with the goodness that you're going to get in the future. And if we went uh, to St. Corinthians chapter 4, 17, I mentioned earlier, Apostle Paul says, what we're experiencing now is light and momentary in comparison to the glory for which it's preparing us. So he says, what we're going through now is preparing us for that future glory, and what we're experiencing now is light and momentary compared to that. And Peter, but he doesn't minimize their pain. He doesn't say, yeah, things are hard, but just get over it. He says, you're grieved by various trials, but, and that's okay. But let me also tell you that this is not going to end. He gives them perspective. He says, there's a purpose in this. There's something to look forward to. And he says, this is producing joy in you in the midst of what you're going through. And it's because disciples of Jesus know the final chapter. It's far better than our current one that we can now live differently. And so how should we live in the midst of trials when things aren't going our way. You might listen to the news or listen to politics a bit. This doesn't seem like things are going our way in this country. Or you might listen to how people talk at our work or family members or whatever it is and be like, these people don't like what I believe in. And so <clears throat> what can we do? How can we have joy in the midst of that? Peter says, look to the future. You haven't seen Jesus, but you love him. You haven't seen him, but you trust in him. And you rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible, he says, and filled. there's like no way it can fully be put to words the joy that we feel. And so even now, there's this taste of that future glory because you're, you have a joy that is filled with glory now. And our faith turns the knob on the faucet of joy because it's how we receive who God is, what he's done, what he's given us. And there's a lot of power in looking forward to something. But too often, what we look forward to is weak, temporary, and shallow, and superficial. And what we put our hope in many times can perish, can be defiled, it can fade. It might give us temporary joy, but it doesn't last. And if you, the best thing, you know, even if I'm, if I'm feeling mad or frustrated or impatient or grieved, I might go through this exercise of like, okay, what are my if-onlys I have in here? If only, you know, this isn't the trials Peter's talking about, but if only my kids would listen, if only this person would respect me, if only um, I could have more money, if only I could feel... You know, have a vacation, if only I could get a break, if only you know, my boss would appreciate what I do. And what are your if-onlys? What are the things you keep reaching for, striving for, waiting for it, pursuing it? And is that working? Is it giving you joy? Even if you got it, what would happen? It would perish quickly. It would fade quickly. It wouldn't be there for long. It doesn't last. And we tend to be very nearsighted when it comes to our hope, that we see things that are a week down the road or a month or eight months down the road, that's where we put our hope. And Peter's trying to help us. He's like an eye doctor. He's like, I want to get you out of being nearsighted. I want to get you so you can actually see way beyond where you're looking right now. I want you to see the hope that God's bringing to you, that it's something that can't be taken away. 
He zooms out beyond the present. And then he says, this hope will help you be faithful in, present, in the present time. Future hope fuels present faithfulness. And the gospel frees us from letting the present determine our joy. And so we can say, everything might be wrong right now. I might be treated wrongly in all the wrong ways, but one day it will be all made right. Everything may be broken now, but everything will be made uh, new then in the future. So I want to turn to his, his greeting. I said we'd come back to it. He starts this letter by saying, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. This little phrase he uses to describe them, elect exiles. You can really sum up this whole letter with those two words and what we've been looking at. You're elect exiles. This describes who they are. And it says you're elect exiles. Uh, uh, so, so the things that come after elect exiles are, um, uh, they're describing how that's possible. He says you're elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Uh, which foreknowledge isn't just knowing what's going to happen in advance. Uh, in the Bible, foreknowledge is like um, talking, it can use, be used in the context of a marital relationship where they know each other. It's not just facts, but it's a, it's a loving, it's a commitment, it's a, um, it's a covenant between one another. And so it's not just God, according to God's pre-knowing of stuff, but it's according to God's pre-loving of you, pre-choosing of you, pre-committing to you. He says, according to God choosing to set his love on you, uh, you're now his elect. Elect is just a word for chosen. You know, our elected officials are people we've chosen. So he says, you are elect because God has chosen you. He's chosen to set his love on you. And he says the same stuff to the nation of Israel. He's like, I'm not choosing you because you're better than anybody else. Um, I'm actually choosing you because you're not better than other people. But I've chosen to set my love on you. Not because you deserve it, not because you earn it, but I'm setting my love on you. And then we're also told that uh, they are sanctified in the sanctification of the Spirit. And sanctification is just kind of a fancy word for saying set apart. It's like if you're you know, at a store or something and you're like, I'm looking for this one particular item and you're kind of like going through, or maybe uh, on Halloween, you get all this candy and you're like, I want the Jolly Rancher. And you're like going through it, looking for the Jolly Rancher and it's like, Ah, you set it apart from the rest and maybe you know hide that, don't let your kids have it. Uh, you just get all the good ones out, set those apart for you, and then give the rest to your kids. And that's what sanctification is. God saying, this is who I want. I'm going to set you apart. And he sets us apart by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the seal of God's love. How do we know God loves us? How do we know God has chosen us? Because he puts the Spirit on us, and I'm sealing with my love. And so now uh, there's this attachment. Like Hudson no, calls me daddy, and I call him my son. And we know that. We don't have to explain that to him. He just knows it. And that's what the Spirit does to us, sets us apart as children of God. And he also says, lastly, um, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. If you don't know much about Christianity, you might quickly be like, why is there all this talk of blood? What a weird thing. We're always talking about blood, Jesus' blood. And uh, the blood really uh, becomes kind of a stand-in for Jesus' death. Because Jesus poured out his blood, poured out his life for us. Um, that's why we can be saved. And so he says, um, you've been set apart, uh, you're elect exiles for sprinkling with Jesus' blood. Meaning, 
You've been forgiven by his death. But he also says um, you've been chosen for obedience to Jesus Christ. And so it's not just we enter into a relationship with God and sweet, I get forgiven of my sins and I just move on. But there's forgiveness and there's obedience. They come, there's privileges and there's responsibilities with being in God's family. That like God calls us to live a different life. And it's more than just saying, belief is more than just saying, I accept and agree that what you've said is true. So I could say, hey, Jesus died for our sins, um, so we can be forgiven. And you might say, okay, I accept and agree that that's true. Belief is much more than that. It includes giving our life to someone, that now it affects us. It's not just accepting a, something as fact, but it's us saying, I'm going to give my life. Jesus was resurrected to be the new king on the throne, and now we say, I'm not going to be on the throne of my life. Jesus is going to be on the throne of my life, and I'm going to obey him. So he calls them elect exiles. They're living in two different realities. They are God's chosen, but they are those that are exiles in the world, rejected by the world. They're in with God, but they're out with the world. You know, in crowd or out crowd. I don't know if out crowd is a thing. In crowd, they're in crowd with God and the out crowd with the world. They belong to God. They don't belong to the world. And we have to choose between the two. Do we want to be accepted by God and rejected by the world? Do we want to be accepted by the world, but rejected by God? So Peter's saying, yes, you are exiled by the world, but you are chosen in love and set apart by God. God has committed to you. The world has pushed you out, but that's because God has brought you in. That's why the world's pushing you out. So for yourself, where are you today? Are you a follower of Jesus, finding it hard to be different because of your faith in him? Are you wondering if it's worth it? And do you put your hope in praise, honor, and acceptance from people? And for us, who are there, we need to put our hope in Jesus and the future that he gives us that cannot be taken away. And instead of fighting for what we can get now, what we want now, we put our hope in that, in something that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for us. Secondly, you might be on the fence about Jesus, curious but cautious, wondering, can I really believe all this? And there's good news that it took... Peter a long time to really get it. It took Jesus' disciples a long time to really get it. But there's this process for them of like, is this worth it? Do I believe this? You know, what, what do I think of all of this? And eventually, Peter saw Jesus was alive and it changed everything for him. And he wouldn't be writing this if he hasn't seen Jesus alive then. And so no matter the things of the world that we might put our hope in, it will fail us. And we can find a hope that is more sturdy and more reliable than anything our if-onlys can offer us. So there's power in looking forward to something. We can look forward to something that's going to relieve us from present hardship. We can look forward to something that is just going to be, we're just excited about. Like, I can't wait till I get there. And that's the hope Jesus gives to us. It's, yes, present suffering, but there's future glory. And all the suffering now only prepares us for what will happen then. Let's pray. Father Peter just starts off going 60 miles per hour in this letter. And he packs so much in. So Lord, would you just take a word or a phrase or an image or an idea that we've heard today and would you just set it on our hearts? Would you let us stick with us beyond this hour, 15 minutes together? Would you let it stick with us today, this week, the rest of our lives? Lord, would you fix our hope fully on Jesus and what he's done for us, and what he will do for us. 
In his name we pray. Amen.